Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and, you know, normally when we have a guest, I make a special point of uh, saying, and today we have a guest, and, but of course, we're America's Constitution um, when uh, Akil is on, when Vic is on, and when Akil and Vic are on, uh, as is happening today. So welcome again, Dean and Professor Vic Amor. Thank you both for having me. And Akil, hello to you, and happy Easter to both of you, and happy Passover to um, my family and to everyone in the audience. Um, so, uh, I mean. Amen, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, my, my, uh, my grandson's too young to ask the four questions this year. He's a year and a half old, but, uh, but he'll, he'll get there soon enough. And he is very proud of all his words already. He's got a very extensive vocabulary. Yeah, but this this weekend he learned helicopter, uh, blueberries, and most importantly, thank you. So okay, so we've been talking about uh, all the constitutional questions, or many of the constitutional questions raised uh, relevant to the nomination and confirmation of Ketanji Brown Jackson, uh, judge or justice. We discussed the the title and the timing of the title. Uh, and we were, we're about ready to wrap it, wrap that part up. We're going to have a couple of, uh, of quotes on the sort of the interchange between, um, and among, uh, Senator Hawley, uh, and, uh, Judge Jackson, and then also Cory Booker and Judge Jackson. Um, and then after that, we're going to talk about, um, something that doesn't really have to do with the hearing per se, but with the nomination process, so I guess I would ask our audience to think about a, a couple of questions. Um, one is, what exactly was Judge Jackson confirmed for? Um, was she confirmed for a specific seat, uh, for just a general seat? Which seat? How do we identify which seat? Uh, and so, so, so forth, some related questions. You may not have thought about that. And then another part, another question to think about has to do with um, the role of the president. The president nominated her, and then eventually, when confirmed, the president presumably will issue a commission. And when does that take place? Does it take, does it take place now? Is it already taken place? Will it take place in the future? What will trigger it? And what happens then? So these are some of the things that we're going to be talking about. And of course, you can imagine that they... Uh, would raise some issues um, possibly related to legitimacy, procedure, formalism. Do we care about these things? Why do we care? Um, so there's a lot to discuss. You guys on board with that? Sounds great. Okay. Yeah. We got the thumbs up from Vic as well. Okay. Now, during the hearing, some of the senators uh, discussed constitutional matters like, we talk, like we've talked about uh, Senator Cornyn, even Senator Graham and Senator Blackburn are some of the people whose who's, uh, issues we've raised. Um, but in the news uh, was largely, I would say, the argument or the attack um, upon uh, Judge Jackson. And I think the most notable one was came because of its um, length and perhaps its, some might say, its viciousness. Uh, came from uh, Senator Hawley. Now, we're not going to play the whole thing, but just to give you an idea, let me give you uh, a few minutes 
of the back and forth there. And actually, uh, we're going to start with um, actually a retort from uh, Judge Jackson. This all had to do with questions about uh, child pornography cases and sentences that she uh, issued as as ju- as a judge that, according to Senator Hawley, didn't conform with the sentencing guidelines or didn't conform with uh, the requests that the government uh, made. That he was complaining that she, you know, fell short of the uh, perhaps the toughest sentences. And some background here, of course, is that there were a lot of people that commented that her her sentences were really in line with the mainstream. I I read. Uh, Judge Pryor, for example, who's certainly no uh, no nobody's liberal, uh, Will Pryor, um, commented that her that she was well within the mainstream. And the other background here is that the judge served on the sentencing commission, so she has uh, you know a, a background there. Okay, so let me play some of this, and then we'll get your comments. Thank you, Senator. I'll make two responses. First, that's not my policy disagreement. I don't know. Why you've characterized that in that way? Well, wait a minute. I wait a minute. You say you say right here in the cases. I mean, this is this is the. What I want to get. I want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing here. This in the Hawkins case. I don't feel that it's appropriate necessarily to increase the penalty on the basis of your use of a computer or the number of images or prepubescent victims. And you say the same thing in Cooper. Senator, two observations. One, I am sentencing in every case. I have policy disagreements with certain aspects of the operation of the guidelines that I lay out in every case as Congress has required and as the Supreme Court permits in light of my experience, not only as a district judge, but also on the Sentencing Commission, which did a report about the operation of the guidelines. Second, you've read extensively from the government's argument in this case, you've not provided information from the probation office or the defense. And I, when I a don't judge, have the probation office reports. No, excuse me, Senator. The probation office provides a, a recommendation. There has been information gathered about what a recommendation was given in each one of these cases. I don't have that information here, but what I'm saying is that in every case, the judge is not just hearing from the government. The, the, the judge is not just evaluating what the government says in these cases. In every criminal case, a judge has to take into account all sorts of factors, including arguments being made by the defendant, by the government, by the probation office. So I understand that in certain cases, the government may have made an argument but there are other people in our criminal justice system who make arguments, and the court evaluates everything as Congress has directed. And no one case can stand in for my entire record of how I deal with criminal cases or did when I was a district judge. I have law enforcement in my family. I am a mother who has daughters who took these cases home with me at night because they are so graphic in terms of the kinds of images that you are describing. They give you not only the actual videos, which you can ask to see, but they describe in the briefs, 
in detail what these videos show. So I am fully aware of the seriousness of this offense and also my obligation to take into account all of the various aspects of the crime as Congress has required me to do, and I made a determination seriously in each case. Uh, what I'm trying to understand is, why is it that you say multiple times that just because there are prepubescent victims in Cooper, in Hawkins, that that does not signal that this is a heinous or egregious child pornography offense, and you're not going to apply any sentencing enhancements that the government's asking you for. The sentence gets to be less because you say, I'm not going to apply. The government asked for enhancements related to prepubescent children, related to the, the nature of these images. You say, I'm not going to apply it. But I get, what you're telling me is, I guess, that you, you don't have a policy objection. I mean, why, why didn't you apply the enhancements as they were asked for? Senator, I've answered this question many times from many senators who've asked me, so I'll stand on what I've already said. So you have nothing to add about, about why these crimes, why these images, in your view, do not signal an especially heinous or egregious child pornography offense. That's Hawkins. You say in Cooper, I understand the government's argument, but I don't find them persuasive, the fact that there were prepubescent children, from the standpoint of characterizing this as an especially egregious child pornography offense. That's page 58. Let me ask you this. You said, Senator Graham, to Senator Graham earlier today that you were trying to do what's rational, and you didn't in sentencing in these cases, and you didn't think it was rational to sentence people who had thousands of images by using a computer to the sentencing guidelines, to the, man, to the mandatory range. I'm sorry, it's not mandatory, to the no longer mandatory range, the discretionary range. No, Senator, I said the guidelines system is designed to be rational. Okay, so let me ask you this. Why isn't it rational to sentence people who have thousands of images on a computer to more time as opposed to somebody who has one or two pictures in the mail. In other words, the more images there are, why wouldn't you want to sentence that person to more time rather than less? Why isn't that rational? Senator, I've answered this question and I'll stand on what I already answered. So, but, but your answer is what? I mean, refresh my memory. Senator, I've answered this question. I've explained how the guidelines work and I'll stand on my answer. But the guidelines are not mandatory. I wish they were, but they're not. The Supreme Court made that determination. I'm trying to understand why you think it's rational not to sentence criminals based on the number of images they have. You say that this is a policy disagreement that you have with the guidelines. This gets to the core of your judicial philosophy. You served on the Sentencing Commission where you recommended changes to the guidelines based in part on this policy disagreement. So I think it's relevant and indeed vital we understand what the policy disagreement is. That's what I'm trying to get at here. Senator, I previously explained what the policy disagreement is, and I will stand on my answer. So you're not going to answer my question? No, I've answered your question in my answer. You haven't I've answered my question. I'm sitting here asking you, and you're declining to answer. I've explained how uh, the guidelines work. I've explained that... Um, the guidelines were developed at a time in which the commission of this crime was different than it is today. I've explained that Congress has not uh, intervened to uh, 
revise or direct the commission around how to deal with the changes in the commission of this crime. And so judges all over the country are grappling with uh, how to apply this guideline under these circumstances. And there's ex an extreme amount of disparity. And in each case, a judge has to look at all of the factors, not just the guidelines, not just what the government asks for, but the recommendations of the probation office, the arguments of the government and the defense, the nature and circumstances of the offense, the history and characteristics of the defendant, the need for the sentence imposed to promote the purposes of punishment, which include things like rehabilitation. Also, in every case, Congress has authorized judges to impose not only terms of imprisonment, which are a very important part of the consequences for these crimes, but a range of other uh, uh, preventative kinds of measures which courts impose in cases to prevent these defendants from repeating these egregious, uh, uh, this type of egregious conduct. And I talked uh, to each defendant, as you have quoted, explaining to them the harms that their crimes caused. And I imposed not only a term of imprisonment, but also all of the other consequences of the offense to include decades of supervision, restrictions on use of a computer, and the like. That's my answer. I've answered it many times. Do you have other questions for me? Um, yeah, I do. I, I do, because I, I want to I try to understand when you talk about the guidelines being outdated and outmoded, I understand that they were written, the initial guidelines were written at a time when computers were not common, everybody didn't have one, certainly didn't have phones in every pocket like we do now, smartphones. So I understand that. I also understand that the number of images, sexually exploitative images of children on these devices has exploded. And so I'm trying to get at what Senator Coons earlier characterized as a pretty fundamental policy question, which I think is the correct characterization here. I'm trying to understand your view on why it is that while the images, the number of images available on these things has exploded, that sentencing shouldn't track that. Okay, well, as you can see, there's a certain degree of repetition um, going on here. Uh, I think that, uh, and we don't need to get into the, the, the details of the, of, you know, the argument. I think that uh, what, what they're getting at there at the end is just that the guidelines were drafted when uh, if you got a lot of images, it was because you did a lot of bad acts. Now you might get a lot of images by clicking a download button um, so that the actual act is, is different. And she's trying to take that into account, and he's, saying, and he's not uh, buying it. So, um, so that's his, uh, his questioning. Um, any comments? Andy, Andy, well, in one sentence, you explained it. She said she'd answered it before, but in a television world, you see, if I didn't hear her earlier answer, and I didn't because I didn't watch the hearings, I might not know what the answer is. So I'm um, actually, he you know, kept saying, give me the answer. And she said, I've already given you the answer. Um, you summarized it. Frankly, I think it would have uh, uh, been to her advantage to, to to summarize it succinctly. Yet again, as as you did, 
And so she actually gave him a certain, again, she's, she's not an oral advocate at the way John Roberts um, was for many years in her, in his career. She, she's a judge. So she's developing a different set uh, or subset of lawyerly skills. He's a senator very skilled at using the, the clock. There's a, a, a Senate question and answer clock with, with different lights. Um, she's familiar with that. The judges are, um, but she's familiar with kind of asking questions and not answering them um, uh, with attention to the clock. So I actually think she would have been well advised to, to summarize, even if it was for the 10th time, um, that point that you, I think, made very succinctly that the statute was adopted at a time when if you had lots and lots of images, it's because you had engaged on different occasions, um, many, many different occasions, um, you had solicited um, a certain kind of, of um, uh, pornography, whereas now with a cl- maybe one click of a button, thousands of images can, can come into your um, uh, computer and um, we might not think that, that that the number of images bears much of a relationship to your culpability. Now, we might think it does because he said, well, there are thousands of images or something. Um, and and that's, a, that's actually a debate. Uh, and apparently, lower court judges actually think about this differently. That's what I was intuiting. But Andy, since I'm t- telling the audience, I didn't watch um, the, the, the hearing start to finish at, at all. I, I actually relied on you to pick out some clips you, I think, heard her um, earlier exposition, um, but not everyone hearing that um, Holly-Jackson um, uh, exchange um, would have done so, and, and it would have been, I think, to her advantage to repeat it yet again, her answer. Well, I think that it's, uh, it's not just a matter of, of him being skillful with the Senate clock. I think he recognizes that there'll be a soundbite that will come from this conversation, and nobody's going to go and edit it with, with a piece from a previous conversation on a right. previous day. So it's not so much the Senate clock, but the way that, that the, the, like you, you know, many people are not going to sit there and watch. They're going to rely on YouTube or CNN to show them, mm-hmm. you know, a 30-second clip. And it may not be an amalgamated clip. It may be a continuous clip like we just played. Um, but having said that, I also think she, she doesn't want to engage in this argument. You know, in other words, the argument that she wants to engage in is, I think, was at the beginning of the clip. And I actually think that she made the point very well. You know, that, Senator, you're talking about, well, why didn't you give the prosecutors what they're asking for? But And her response is, because there are 10 other people speaking, and they all have, or many of them may have valid points. And you have to put them all together. And, of course, there is a certain degree of... uh, of advocacy going on or, you know, or, uh, um, you know, conflict that the, that the uh, prosecutors are, you, know, you can expect them to be sort of at one end of the, of the sentencing recommendation. And so it's reasonable for the judge to listen to all these things. And it's, it's unfair to only quote one of the 10 arguments and say, why didn't you do that? Yeah, but it, her answer was pretty abstract. She didn't say specifically, here's why I didn't actually find mm. them 
compelling. Andy, you did it better than she did. Um, maybe she, maybe you're just simply summarizing what she had said before, but she could have done it again. She could have, she could have actually had knowing that this was going to happen. She, she, she could have had it on her little iPhone, the, the, the clip and actually just say, as I said before, and I quote, and mm-hmm. then, you know, it would have been a clip, but it would have been edgy and, and, and provocative, but, but it actually sounded as if she didn't want to give him a specific substantive answer when she apparently had a good one. Well, like you, I didn't, I didn't watch, uh, I didn't have time to watch most of the hearings. I actually um, was able to infer even before Andy's summary, the nature of the uh, response because Holly set it up himself. He said, look, I understand that the guidelines were, were written before the advent of, of computers and smartphones, where the number of images someone had was not a function of just a few seconds of downloading. He got, he got that. But he said, nonetheless, isn't a larger number of pictures still a problem? But, but I think that her, her uh, response was kind of implicit in, in his setup initially. But that brings me to the other point that kind of got lost in that. Holly mentioned at one point that he wishes the guidelines were mandatory. Uh, and they once were mandatory, but in 2005, the Supreme Court in Booker ruled that uh, because uh, if, ma- if the guidelines are mandatory, that means that facts that are not being determined by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt, but rather facts that are just made by the judge during sentencing will have the effect of bumping people up into higher sentencing ranges. That's unconstitutional. That violates um, the Constitution. And I know that a lot of district judges bridled under the mandatory nature of the sentencing guidelines when they were mandatory, and they relished the idea of applying a more holistic approach to sentencing, where, as Andy points out, you, you look at, at the, what the defense arguments are and what the probation report is and, and personal characteristics about the defendant and predictions about human nature. That's part of what we hire judges to do is to, to exercise good judgment. So for me... The real question is, is whether her consistent exercises of judgment are outside the mainstream, to take us back to what you said earlier, Andy, quoting um, uh, Judge Pryor, uh, uh, William Pryor, not um, uh, uh, my classmate and, and friend, uh, an actual student, Jill Pryor. Um, but, uh, but, you know, once uh, Judge Jackson was able to show that her sentencing outcomes were in the mainstream and that her judgment wasn't that different than at least a lot of other district court judges, I think that... The argument um, that Holly was making loses much of its bite, but he, he admitted that these guidelines are not mandatory, and so she could have reminded him of that and said, once they're not mandatory, I'm supposed to exercise judgment on a holistic basis. That's my job. I'm not supposed to be a robot following the guidelines or the, the, the uh, United States' interpretation of them, um, and so she could have made that substantive point as well. Holly, Holly made her argument only at the very end. And Vic, you're particularly skilled at teasing out the argument because you're law trained. Um, and again, um, if this is about scoring points on TV, um, Holly actually um, outdueled her to a certain extent um, 
And, um, and even if she's in the mainstream, that may not be enough for some people in the um, uh, watching it on TV um, or for, for Holly, for that matter. It, it's perfectly legitimate to say, I know there are a lot of judges who agree with you on this. There are a lot who disagree with you on this, and, and I'm with those who disagree. Um, uh, so, um, but it's just a reminder that the job, especially of a district judge, is not day in and day out. Um, even though the, ju- the judge must give reasons often, sometimes the reasons are this is within my lawful discretion and, and I exercise it and you don't have to say more than that. Um, and um, even if you say more than that, it's typically in writing um, and, um, and she is not as, um, in this exchange, um, she did not quite engage in the cut and, and thrust and, and, and parry of a forensic oral um, back and forth in the same way that I, you know, a, a person who does that every day for his or her legal job might have. Let's take, for example, um, John Roberts before he was a judge on the D.C. Circuit, before he was and still is, of course, Chief Justice of the United States. He was an oral advocate. We had Neil Katyal on our program um, uh, twice, actually, um, um, several months ago, and he just reminded us, gee, in, in oral argument, minutes count, seconds count, and, and you really hone um, your back-and-forth skills. Even, even law professors have to do that. In class, we get questions all the time from, uh, from every which field, and our credibility, our, uh, our uh, respect depends in part on our ability to very quickly give substantive answers, not that we make up things when we haven't thought about them or we don't um, identify uh, provisional answers when, when they are provisional. I, I agree with everything you said. I just want to make one point, though. I actually think it was Jackson's job not to win over the Hollies of the world and those who follow him, but to show that she's in the mainstream. Because we live in a world today where she's never going to get Holly or people who follow him. So for her, it's just convincing some people in the middle, on the margin, that she's not this extreme person that, say, Lindsey Graham painted her out to be because all of her supporters are, as Graham put it, you know, people who want to tear down the Constitution. And I actually would would bet that if Josh Hawley were a judge, that that he would have ruled similarly to Judge Jackson in these cases. Because I think she actually was right, and Will Pryor said so, and he knows, you know, and he's he's Josh Hawley in terms of his, you know, his uh, political, you know, inclinations. Um, um, he, and and Vic um, properly distinguished um, a Judge William Pryor from right. um, Jill Pryor, our, our friend, um, and and Judge William Pryor I, tends to go by Bill and not Will, I, I believe. Just okay. since we're since we're getting we're being very precise about our Priors. But prior to that, I said I don't know what Judge Holly would be like. I'll say one point. It's kind of a, a crass political point that. Judges, even district court judges who have aspirations to be mm-hmm. court of appeals judges or Supreme Court justices may, you know, subconsciously be influenced in their even their sentencing patterns. Obviously, Judge Jackson is not going to get elevated by a Republican president and, and Josh Hawley's not going to get elevated by a Democratic president. So I don't know that Hawley's record of sentencing wouldn't be different than Jackson's. 
in part because they just have different philosophies, but also in part because they have different ambitions. Right. Oh, but that's why I was using Judge Pryor as an example, because, you know, he, he's been uh, listed on the Republican shortlists for the Supreme Court in the past. So I would say that his ambitions are congruent with Josh Hall, would, uh, what Josh Hawley's would be if he were, you know, in a judicial capacity. Yeah, yes, but I'll say one thing. Judges, once they reach a certain age where they're no longer relevant to shortlists, mm-hmm. um, have a very different attitude about what they can say publicly and what they, they do say. Yeah, they get a little more open. Um, that, that, that's, that's a fair point. I, just to, to wrap this up before we go on to Senator Booker, you know, I would say here that um, you know, if you take the totality of the questioning between Hawley and, and uh, Jackson over the several days, in my opinion, Judge Jackson won the argument, okay? Um, but Senator Hawley won the soundbite, okay? Because, and why did he win the soundbite? Because, because senator after senator, Republican senator after Republican senator, when they voted against Judge Jackson for confirmation, cited this subject. And he was you know, kind of in- inquisitor-in-chief on this particular subject, although Senator Cruz tried to get his... his uh, you know, daggers out for, for this as well. Um, and so he got what he wanted, which is, you know, he, he, he made a point, a point which I think I've, I doubt he actually believes and, and a point which I don't think he actually made if you were actually to take the totality of the argument. So therefore, I think that she was right, as, as Vic implied, that no matter what she said, this was going to happen, okay? That and therefore to go into a back and forth, all that could have happened out of that was she she inevitably would have been, been put in a position of defending child pornographers, right? Saying, "Well, he wasn't so bad for this reason, or this thing wasn't as bad as that," and that's why I I, I you know showed some leniency, and that would be even worse for her. So I think she was right to avoid getting into the specifics. Um, of, of the case at that level, um, just from a strategic point of view. And it goes back to our, you know, underlying theme here of what are these hearings about? What are they accomplished? You know, and, and, you know, what might make them better, which we we've discussed over the previous episodes. And now you see why Eric Garland, who who was blockaded, is now thinking, well, you know, at least I wasn't sort of slimed or made out to be a thug or a, um, um, uh, um, so, um, uh, very few people, uh, change their, um, uh, likely votes, e- even the, the ones who cross party lines, I'm not sure they actually ch- change their minds in the course of, uh, these, um, uh, uh, public conversations. I think they, they, they maybe in their own heads, maybe quietly, they hadn't announced, but the three who crossed party lines probably, um, were inclining her way um, uh, at, at the outset. She may not have had them at hello, but um, they were leaning in her favor um, at hello. Andy, and I also agree with you that she's not going to gain anything by descending into the facts of, of child pornography cases. Mm-hmm. You know, any, anything she says about why the sentence wasn't harsher is not going to serve her well. It may not change votes. The Dems are still going to stick with her, but it's not going to be great for Biden. It's not going to be great for anybody else out there. So I think 
Um, you know, she could have, re- as I just said, she could have reiterated in more general terms why she doesn't think that all the factors, the guidelines adopted at a very different technological time uh, should be applied mechanically, especially in light of the Supreme Court's admonition that the guidelines are not supposed to be considered mandatory. But I don't think it had behooved her to get too much into particular cases. So after all this, um, I think there was some visible relief when she got to listen to uh, Senator Booker. Um, and he has quite a different style than what we've been listening to. So let's, uh, let's listen to him here. Senator Booker. Uh, thank you very much. Judge, after me, only five to go. <laughs> but sit back for a second, because uh, I don't have questions right away. I actually have a number of things I, I just want to say, because this has been uh, not a surprise, given the history that we all know, not a surprise, but uh, perhaps a little bit of a disappointment, uh, some of the things that have been said in, in this hearing. Uh, the way you have dealt with some of these things um, that's why you are a judge and I am a politician, because you have sat with grit and grace and have shown us just extraordinary uh, demeanor uh, during the times where people were saying things to you that are actually out of the norm. I had to go up dais uh, to ask some of my more senior colleagues about the, what I feel like is a dangerous precedent. People are taking uh, a thousand cases you've been o- over. Is that right? I'm sorry. I said you wouldn't ask you questions, but just give me a. Some, something like that. Something like that. And from what I understand is that these cases are often takes, take days, weeks, sometimes months, right? To, to, to decide to, in to a st- case. Yeah, yeah. Yes. There's a trial sometimes. And the, folks are taking any of those cases and just trying to pick pieces out. And so uh, my, my colleague, Senator Hawley, has been doing this all into the lead up and saying things, tweeting things that I think that a lot of us, when I was just trying to get some advice here, is this is what the new standard is going to be. That any judge coming before us that has ever chosen outside of the sentencing guidelines, below the sentencing guidelines, we're creating this environment now where I could make myself the hero of people who have been victims of some horrible crime and suddenly put whatever judge I want on the defensive by trying to drag out little bits when they have no context to the case. None of the facts. They're seeking to exploit the complexities of a criminal justice system, the reason why we have a third branch of government. I I feel bad that there was a judge mentioned by name in this hearing that's uh, uh, from Senator Hawley's state. What is that judge going to think next time they, they have a complicated sexual abuse case that comes before them, and they know that they could possibly be called out if they go below the sentencing guidelines, which I showed you yesterday in my lack of chart. If you remember, I was uncharted. (laughs) Um, But that you are deciding completely in the norm. 70-plus percent in many states of people are doing just like you did. But I'm a a Democratic senator. I've never quoted from this very well-respected, conservative a periodical. This is the National Review. Very well-respected. They're not, not necessarily something I agree with all the time. But here's what the National uh, Review, this is the title. Senator Hawley's disingenuous attack against Judge Jackson's record on child pornography. I'll just read the first paragraph. I would oppose Judge Katanji uh, Brown Jackson because of her judicial philosophy for the reasons I outlined last week. 
I addressed that in a separate post. For now, I want to dis discuss the claim by Senator Josh Hawley that Judge Jackson is appallingly soft on child pornography offenders. This is the kicker here. The allegations appear meritless to the point of demagoguery. I, I, I got letters from leaders of victims' rights groups, survivors of assault, all saying sort of the same thing with the National Review. Feel proud about yourself. You brought together right and left in this, in this, in this calling out of people that will sit up here and try to pull out from cases and try to put themselves in a position where they're the defenders of our children to a person who has children, to a person whose family goes out in streets and defends children. I, I mean, this is a, a new, new low. And what's especially surprising about this is it didn't happen last year. You were put on a court that I'm told is the, considered like the second most powerful court in our land. And you were passed with bipartisan support. Nobody brought it up then. Did they not do their homework? Were they lax? Did they make a mistake? I wonder, as they ask you the question, do you regret? I wonder if they regret that, that they didn't bring that out. No, why? Because it was an allegation that is meritless to the point of demagoguery. Okay, we have another quote where uh, Senator Booker um, waxes a little more personal, and I think it, uh, it affects Judge Jackson as well. I just look at you and I, I start getting full of emotion. I'm jogging this morning, and I'm at the end of the block I live on, and I get terrified, because I put my music on loud when I'm jogging, <laughs> trying to block out the noise of the, of the heart attack I'm having. <laughs> <laughs> And this woman comes up on me, practically tackles me, an African-American woman. And the look on her eyes, she just wanted to touch me because I think because I'm sitting so close to you <laughs> and tell me what it meant to her to watch you sitting where you're sitting. And you did not get there because of some left-wing agenda. You didn't get here because of some dark money groups. You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done by being <laughs> like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm just sitting here saying nobody's stealing my joy. Nobody's going to make me angry, especially not people that are called in a conservative magazine demagogic for what they're bringing up that just doesn't hold water. I'm not going to let my joy be stolen because I know you and I, we appreciate something that we get that a lot of my colleagues don't. I know Tim Scott does. When I first came to this place, I was the fourth black person ever popularly elected to the United States Senate. And I still remember a lot of mixed people, white folks, black folks work here. But at night, when people are in line to come in to clean this place, the, the, the percentage of minorities shift a lot. And so I'm walking here, first week I'm here, 
and somebody who's been here for decades doing the urgent work of the Senate, but it's the unglamorous work that goes on no matter who's in offices. The guy comes up to me, all he wants to say, I can tell is, I'm so happy you're here. But he comes up and he can't get the words out. And this man, my elder, starts crying. And I, I just hugged him. And he just kept telling me, it is so good to see you here. It's so good to see you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I love my brother, Tim Scott. We could write a dissertation on our disagreements. He gave the best speech on race. I wish I could have given as good of a speech. But talking to the challenges and indignities that are still faced. And you're here. I was in the White House with my Democratic colleagues. And I'm, again, I'm in my joy. I can't help it. <laughs> and, and, and the president's asking our advice. Who should we nominate and whatever. And I look at Kamala and we have a knowing glance which we've had for years, when she and I used to sit on this end of this committee at times. And then I try to get out to the president what it means. What it means. And I want to tell you, when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're... You're, you're an intellect, you love books, but for me, I'm sorry. I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom, not to see my, my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had, to be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's gonna steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts Nobody's going to steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. Your hero is Constance Baker Motley. Mine, she has sat on my desk for my offices that I've held. She's my icon of America. Her name is Harriet Tubman. There is a love in this country that is extraordinary. You admitted it about your parents. They loved this nation, even though there were laws preventing them from getting together. When they were loving, there were laws in this country that would have prevented you from marrying your husband. It wasn't that long ago. It was last generation. But they didn't stop loving this country, even though this country didn't love them back. And what were the words of your heroes and mine? What did Constance Baker Motley do? Did she, this country that she saw insults and injuries, when she came out of law school, law firms wouldn't even hire her because she was a woman. Did she become bitter? Did she try to create a revolution? No, she used the very constitution of this nation. She loved it so much, she wanted America to be America. As Langston Hughes wrote, oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet, but yet must be the land where everyone is free. Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be. And he goes on for another four minutes, but I think that, uh, you know, we get the idea. He's, that's a very moving speech by Senator Booker. So perhaps um, fittingly, given that this is a Marxist constitution, Andy, you've, you've edited the confirmation hearings in, in a way that's very much um, kind of uh, 
um, from an, an Amar point of view, um, we heard from Josh Holly, who happens to be a former student of mine. Um, and we heard from Cory Booker, who also happens to be a former student of mine. And you heard their very um, different styles as senators. I'm very proud of, of, of Cory Booker, just as a human being. Um, I, I've always just a- admired the largeness of his soul. And I think um, some of that came out. We've been talking about um, different kinds of lawyers, appellate advocates versus uh, trial judges, appellate lawyers, Supreme Court justices. It's interesting to compare and contrast Hawley and uh, Booker. Hawley, in effect, played the role of a prosecutor at every level. Um, uh, he, he believes that um, uh, sex offenders sh- should be um, harshly prosecuted. He sides with prosecutors asking for harsh sentences. And he, in effect, prosecuted the case, at least in the court of public opinion, against Katenji Brown Jackson. And, and Cory Booker, in effect, played the role of a certain kind of defense attorney. Um, uh, defending, you know, the client, in this case, the client being Katenji Brown-Jackson and, and personalizing the client for the benefit of um, the, the jury, so to speak, and in, in this case, um, um, all of us, the, the American people. So you, you saw sort of co- contrasting si- styles of a, of, a, of a prosecutorial attorney and um, uh, uh, a defense attorney, both um, very distinguished graduates of uh, a very distinguished law school, mainly mine. I think he also personalized the stakes of the hearing, in a sense, that that he transcended uh, Katenji Brown-Jackson herself and, and personalized the process. Um, and, and a certain kind of defense attorney does that by both... Um, uh, um, talking about the defendant, but also um, trying to uh, appeal more universally to the better angels of our nature, mercy, um, uh, compassion, uh, etc. Yes. Generosity. And I'm sure we can all think of various Law & Order episodes that personify that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell the audience, um, way back when... Um, in September of 2018, I actually um, was uh, uh, in that, that very uh, room, the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, testifying about um, uh, in a Supreme Court confirmation process. That was about Brett Kavanaugh. Again, to remind everyone, this is before issues about Christine Blasey Ford arose. So that was just not at all an issue. It was it was actually an examination of. Um, then Judge Kavanaugh's um, rulings um, as a lower court judge, just as we heard conversations about Judge Jackson's rulings as a um, a lower federal court judge. And in the back and forth uh, of that confirmation hearing, uh, toward the very end, actually, uh, Cory Booker um, asked a question uh, of me. And and at first, I thought he was going to come after me very hard. I, w- I was testifying on behalf of the nominee, and I suspected that he was going to vote against the nominee, as indeed he did. But I think our audience might uh, might enjoy hearing um, the, the clip of from September 2018, um, an earlier Supreme Court confirmation hearing when, when I was actually in the room and testifying. I have one more question. It's going to be mean. It's going to be a mean question. So please don't interrupt me, though. Let me get it out. And say potato to potato to you, but this is going to be mean. Let me get it out. Uh, Akhil Amar, sir, Mr. Professor, 
I have one question for you, my final question. In your con law class, do you regret passing me? <laughs> you, you have a right to remain silent. Yeah. <laughs> you are under oath. I think the only thing that I ever did to my Wikipedia page was add your name as one of my former notable students because I'm so proud to be associated with you, even if we disagree on this issue, as we may very well. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. The, the audience may be interested to note that, um, that whenever I ha have a change to my Wikipedia page, like adding um, a notable student, I, I ask Andy to do it. So, Andy, you are implicated in, in that exchange as well, because I think you were the one who revised my Wikipedia page to, to add Cory Booker at a certain point. And, and I, am, I am very proud to know him. There are moments in the hearing where I think it's appropriate to make a, you know, an overall statement like that emotional statement. And in this, this hearing, I think there was an emotional component to it. Um, so I think that, I think, I don't think it's inappropriate. Vic, what's, what's your take on this kind of a statement? Andy, let me just say one other thing, just to anticipate what Vic might say. Vic and I have long exp um, uh, explained that, uh, have explained in, in many contexts that, that um, the confirmation hearings, of, especially of a, for a very high-level position like Supreme Court justice, are special because it's not like a bill. A bill you can bottle up, you can, you can amend, you can change. You're dealing with a human being. And what Vic and I have talked about is that there's a human being with family and friends and a face. And that actually is an important part of the advice and consent process. This, for example, not equally true when the Senate is engaged in advice and consent to a treaty, for example. It's, it's, a, it's a different sort of thing because it's one person, and it's up, down. You, 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 can, you can say, well, I like this bill, but here's a better bill. You, you can't quite do that with a nominee. You may never get a better nominee. You have to vote this one down, not knowing who the next one is that might be teed up. So there is an inescapably personal dimension to this. It gives the president a certain advantage if he picks a, a, a person who is a, a decent person. Um, uh, a person who does indeed have family and friends. And that's, in fact, those are the words that Vic and I have used on previous occasions to talk about the confirmation hearings, a face, a family, and friends. And I think you saw all of that in, in, in actually all of these uh, exchanges today because it, it, it is a personal process. I, I make three quick points in answer to your general question of, of how effective I thought Senator Booker was. First, he did make a very lawyerly point when he contrasted the attitude of the Senate Republicans and the vote of the Senate Republicans uh, when Judge Jackson was being considered for the D.C. Circuit. Uh, now, we've talked on this podcast about how it's a different uh, uh, situation when someone is going to be uh, a judge on the highest court in the land and not be uh, bound by stare decisis the way lower court judges are. But again, if we're talking about debating and style points, I thought that was an effective rejoinder to Holly to point out that, hey, you know, this is all the stuff you're dredging up is made for the occasion because no, no one seemed to be talking about this earlier. And actually, um, point, and actually the difference between the two jobs just of uh, you know, the job she has on the Supreme Court justice job, 
He's not going to be issuing sentences, you know, as a Supreme Court justice. So this very this very point would have been more relevant to the previous job than to the job they're actually, you know, questioning her about now. Yes, and, and, and precisely because, Andy, something that was implicit in what you just said, um, probably uh, the listeners of this podcast know this, but doing justice, that is fixing mistakes, getting the law right, that is the job of the United States Court of Appeals, not the job of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court picks cases to resolve important, unanswered questions of law, not to make sure that things got properly administered in each case. That's why you have an appeal as of right from the district court to the Court of Appeals, but no appeal as of right from the Court of Appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court. They take fewer than 100 cases a year. So you're right. Court of Appeals jobs, uh, Court of Appeals uh, judges need to be good at error correction, and this would have been an appropriate line of questioning um, uh, to uh, nominee uh, uh, Jackson when she was uh, going up for the Court of Appeals. What, what's your attitude about these kinds of sentences? So that's point one. Um, uh, I thought I thought Cory Booker was effective there. Point two is this this nomination and this appointment is a huge deal for African Americans and African American women around the country. And I think it's perfectly appropriate um, for a senator to want to take a moment on this stage to celebrate that. That goes to what I just said about you know, the big heart and, and the big vision that Cory Booker has. The third thing I'll say is, as we pointed out over and over, the, the, you know, the, the result here was pretty much a done deal. And if the, if, the, if the senators are really trying to kind of make sure that they stay in touch with and signal to and cue to their base, just as Holly was trying to score points with people who already were opposed to Judge Jackson, I think Senator Booker was trying to really rally the troops by reminding everybody um, how, how good Judge Jackson is as a representative of this particular segment of, of America. Okay, so I think that it's fair to say that we've examined the questioning uh, with, with a fine-tooth comb and brought up many constitutional issues. But let's take a step back from the actual hearing and look at the, at the process as a whole. Um, it seems to me that uh, the process began, arguably even before Justice Breyer resigned, with questions about whether he would resign. Um, and in fact, the, when he, he actually still hasn't resigned. All he's done is announced his intention to resign. Um, so does the, the announcement of an intention to resign create an opening on the court that the Senate can then vote to confirm or, 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 or not confirm? Just the fact that one intends to resign? I am going to say something that I don't often say, and that is I haven't thought a lot about this, and I don't know that I have very firm views about what the president's power here is. Um, on the one hand, I find it perfectly reasonable to want seamlessness on the Supreme Court, and by that I mean it's perfectly reasonable to want someone confirmed, ready to go, at the moment that uh, the justice whom we know is going to or expect is going to step down does step down. So I think there's a, a certain value in having that um, a transition. Uh, at the other end of the extreme, I don't think a president could nominate and have a, a friendly Senate confirm um, a list of 10 people for the next 10 openings, no matter when they occur, and who's in the White House and who's in the Senate when those openings do occur. So uh, for me, context is important. And the fact that Judge Breyer has indicated not just a desire to step down, but a timeline for stepping down, and the fact that this hearing is proximately uh, positioned to, uh, to resolve in, in, in good uh, uh, time 
uh, to fill that vacancy when we fully expect Justice Breyer to uh, step down. I see no problem uh, with it. Indeed, maybe even uh, President uh, Biden could issue a commission now that would take effect uh, when Breyer steps down. But I do understand that there's a, a ripeness issue here, and we don't want presidents doing this, um, uh, trying to bind their successors or bind future Senates um, uh, when we don't even know what the likelihood of future vacancies is. But I admit, I really need to, I, I need to hear what other people think about this, read more, um, uh, you know, uh, think about analogies. Um, the Supreme Court has decided uh, several cases about uh, 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 recesses and, uh, and, 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 and appointments during recess and, and the like. So, um, but those are my preliminary thoughts. I think recess appointments is something very different. That's provided for in the Constitution. There is It know. is, but the court has to decide when vacancies actually occur. Noel Canning was about when, when a vacancy occurred and how long it lasted. I think I mentioned to you there's this uh, dispute in Oklahoma right now over Senator Jim uh, Inhofe, who announced he's going to step down in 2023, and they're holding an election to fill his vacancy in 2022. Um, but some people are claiming that there's no vacancy to fill. How can you have an election without a, without a space? So I think these are these are important questions that recur throughout the Constitution. I, I need more time uh, and thought to put it all together, but those were my my initial instincts. Um, so uh, one of my books is entitled "America's Unwritten Constitution," and uh, for some people, them's fighting words. What do you mean, unwritten, Professor? You Ivy League um, thing? You um, uh, now, of course. I wrote a previous book on the written constitution start to finish, and I take it very seriously indeed. Um, unlike some people who talk very loosely about an unwritten constitution and forget that there's a, a written constitution at the heart of the project. Um, but the unwritten constitution book was designed in part um, to remind folks that there are all sorts of um, issues that, that the constitution words don't speak to with great precision, but we need kind of an answer to, com to complete the project, to fill in the, the inevitable gaps that exist um, in uh, a written um, constitutional system. Um, this is sort of one of them, and, um, and I believe that there actually um, is some uh, practice um, and, and tradition that um, uh, uh, fills the gaps in some of these um, uh, nice little questions. So um, suppose Breyer had actually said, I will resign upon the end of uh, this Supreme Court term. Then his resignation letter, I think, would look very, very similar to several other recent resignation letters of, of other justices that triggered um, uh, confirmation um, hearings even before um, the vacancy um, actually occurred. Sometimes people said at the end of the term, other times they said, I will resign, um, I will, I, I hereby announce that I, I will resign when my successor is um, selected. Now, sometimes there's a little awkwardness when my uh, successor is um, uh, appointed to my spot, but they can't be appointed to the spot until you resign. And you, you know, if you're resigning is conditional upon their being appointed. Sometimes it's been a little imprecise, but, but often it's been upon the confirmation of my successor. 
um, or um, maybe they might even say commissioning, but maybe the commission actually can uh, issue before it's formally been accepted. So once the president has actually issued the commission, then the justice resigns, and then the person who received the commission can accept the commission. Um, but but Breyer didn't quite do that. He didn't say, I, I shall resign upon um, a certain contingency. He said, I intend to. That's a little more complicated. Now, apparently... This has happened in the past, and not just maybe for Supreme Court positions, but other positions. And there is an, an, a memo on this, an important legal memo, not a Supreme Court opinion, um, but a, a memo issued by the Office of Legal Counsel, the OLC. Um, um, and this office is um, uh, especially, uh, the, um, in effect, the internal law office for the executive branch, um, many people who have um, been prominent uh, figures in the OLC have, in fact, gone on to uh, beyond the Supreme Court itself. And indeed, the memo that I have in mind was written by um, uh, then OLC head William Rehnquist, who would later become an associate justice and then chief justice. Other OLC um, uh, officials have included Antonin Scalia. Um, for a, a example, and we talked in the uh, tribute um, episode to, to Walter Dellinger about Dellinger's service in the Office of Legal Counsel. But this Rehnquist memo, which I think has now been publicly released and which we can um, uh, put up on the show notes, um, actually says there are um, some uh, earlier precedents, not judicial precedents, but resignation replacement uh, precedents um, that are illuminating here um, and, and, and clarifying. I think one of them is from 1869 and another one's from 1922. So apparently this sort of thing has happened before and um, and there's a kind of a common law, a custom, a tradition that fills the gaps of the Constitution. And I think Vic may have even read the, the memo with some care. Andy, I think you may have even looked at the, the memo. I've only just briefly um, scanned it. I haven't had a chance to, to carefully review it. But um, here are some of the moves that, that, that are relevant. Well, to the before, memo. You, before you get into that, let me, let me give some facts to our audience here. And, and I did read that memo. Um, but before I, go, I give you my, my sense of what the memo says, um, let me first read for our audience Justice Breyer's resignation letter, okay, uh, in pertinent part. Dear Mr. President, I am writing to tell you that I have decided to retire from regular active judicial service, Associate Justice, Supreme Court of the United States, and to serve under the provisions of 28 U.S.C. Section 371B which I believe covers senior status or something to, to that effect. Um, I, intend this I intend this decision to take effect when the court rises for the summer recess this year, typically late June or early July, assuming that by then my successor has been nominated and confirmed. And the rest of it is just uh, thanking people. Um, Before you go uh, back to the Rehnquist memo, let me just contrast. I, I just pulled up the, the two resignation letters that happened in the early 90s when uh, Bill Brennan and then uh, Thurgood Marshall retired. They used the exact same first paragraph. Let me read it to you. The strenuous demands of court work and its related duties required uh, or expected of a justice appear at this time to be incompatible with my advancing age and medical condition. 
So the, the first paragraph is identical between Brennan's and Marshall, but Brennan says, I therefore retire effective immediately as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, respectfully. Whereas Thurgood Marshall says, I therefore retire as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States when my successor is qualified. So there's so many of these variations out there. But these are, um, and I these are very... Form a common law of sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did not read the, uh, the uh, Rehnquist OLC memo, um, uh, and you said you did, so you can tell us what you thought it said. Right, I, I will in just a moment. But just the key difference as far as I can see in between uh, the, um, the second memo that you read from uh, Thurgood Marshall... Um, and Justice Breyer's was the only thing he says that that is firm is that he's decided to retire. But of course, they've all decided to retire. You know, they, they might des- decide to retire when they die. You know, um, you know. Uh, but I. But the pertinent part is I intend this decision to take effect at, at a particular time, assuming that. And he doesn't have. So there's nothing certain here because. He's assuming something. Well, if it doesn't occur, he doesn't say what's going to happen. And well, that's what that, but Marshall said that too. He says, I retire when. So all, all the work is done by the word when there, uh, but it's the same kind of condition. Oh, I but therefore this is retire associate justice mm. when my successor is qualified. I mean, I think that the difference there is that he would have to retract that letter somehow in order to, to not be, res, to have not resigned at the, at the point at which that person is confirmed whereas Breyer still hasn't done anything saying that he's going... I suppose, I suppose by Breyer saying, this is my intention, right. assuming that, but, uh, but his intention could, could, uh, could change, um, and it wouldn't, he wouldn't have lied in the first place, so yeah. Right, the implication is that it would change, you know, or at least it very well might. Okay, now, as to the OLC memo, I think, first of all, the title of the memo is quite informative as to what it covers. The title of the, mem- of the memo is... Delay in induction of judge into office following his confirmation by the Senate. And the date? Uh, November 27th, 1970 is the, is the stamp date. You know, it could be like when it was yeah. received or whatever. Um, so this is not really um, a, a memo that addresses the issue of what happens if there isn't a vacancy yet. It doesn't address that at all. In fact, it only it only addresses questions of what happens if someone is confirmed. What happens after someone is confirmed? And, and it's specifically dealt with people that are in office. Um, and then to, they now are confirmed for another office. So, you know, can they still serve in their existing office after they're confirmed? You know what? And that's where they get into questions of the commission um, can they suppose the president issues a the president's com, con, confirmed and then the president issues a commission? Do they have to leave their office? So some judges, you know, were working on some important case and they wanted to finish the case before they moved on to their next office, or and that's what they they talk about here. But of course, this could also be a question of suppose that it was a senator that was nominated uh, for for the position and then they're confirmed. Well, when they take office, they they have to resign from the Senate um, at that point. So, you know, do they have to resign from the Senate at the point that they're confirmed, or can, or do are they do they resign when their commission is granted, or do they resign when they accept their commission? Do they have to accept the commission? When do they have to accept the commission? So these are these are the issues that this memo addresses. And I'm sorry, Keel, but it does not address the question uh, at all of. Uh, 
of what of what happens um, if they're you know if the person is someone is still occupying the office. Akhil, let me let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question about see what your instant reaction is. Putting aside the the what question of of what the rules should be here, um, do you think this is a something the court would just be able to decide in the same way that the House and Senate get to decide who's been properly uh, officially elected to their body? So so wouldn't it be up to the Supreme Court to decide? whether someone had properly been confirmed, notwithstanding all the, the nuance in these letters and the timing of the uh, commission and all that? Sure. And, um, and not, as a, not, not in adjudicating a case so much as deciding their, its own membership in the same way that the House and Senate get to. Yeah, they um, declined to do that when issues were raised about um, the arguable um, incompatibility um, uh, involving uh, Hugo Black. Let me take a step back. The audience needs to know that the Constitution says that you can't be a senator and um, a a judge or justice at the same time. um, Judges and justices and cabinet members, for that matter, are officers of the United States, and you can't be an officer and a senator at the same time. That's the incompatibility clause of Article One, um, Section 6. Now, that um, clause also says you can't um, hold an office whose salary um, was increased during the time for which you were uh, elected to be a senator or representative. Now, Hugo Black was a senator of the United States, and he was um, nominated to the Supreme Court. He was Franklin Roosevelt's first nominee, um, confirmed uh, by his colleagues in the Senate. Uh, Presumably, he didn't vote on that. Um, um, But um, an issue arose because... Arguably, the salary of the justice had been increased during the time for which Hugo Black was a senator. Now, I think he there, there were there were some com- complexities about that, and and he wasn't going to take the salary in- increase. I may have gotten some of the details um, uh, wrong, but I think that it involved a thing called a Saxby fix, which I'm not going to explain today, but which we can talk about later. Um, so um, there was an issue actually about whether he was sort of properly a justice and, and the rest of the, the court didn't really want to get into it. And frankly, they just they just sat with him. But let me just take a, a step back um, one more time, Andy, and, and just um, try to identify um, some of the the um, issues that that you raise. So the, the memo and you've looked at it more carefully than I have the Rehnquist memo makes a few thoughtful points. One is, it, it says, um, we, let's look actually at the precedents, and the precedents aren't just the judicial precedents, they're actual past practice for previous um, um, vacancies and, and replacements. Um, second, that there have been, forget the, 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 the Rehnquist memo for just for a moment, um, I'm telling you, there have been all sorts of situations, in recent situations, where um, a Supreme Court um, appointment is processed while the, um, um, the slot um, is still being filled because someone has said, I will step down 
um, um, when my successor is picked. So, so we've, we've crossed that bridge long ago. There, there's, um, and, and, and the constitution's text, I think is, um, uh, sufficiently ambiguous on this and, and the text of various statutes creating, um, Supreme Court associate slot positions that, um, th- this unwritten practice in effect is, um, a gloss on the text. And by a gloss on the text, I basically mean the text isn't so clear, uh, creating, um, Supreme Court associate justiceships and, uh, or, uh, um, and the Constitution isn't exactly clear on how, how vacancies um, are, are processed. This practice is, you know, uh, consistent enough with um, a, one sensible understanding of the text. And if Congress wanted to change it, it could, but instead, in effect, Congress, by not passing a new statute and, and modifying other aspects of uh, appointment and, and replenishment process has in effect blessed it. Now, Breyers is a little bit trickier, as I said, because he didn't say I will retire, but I intend to retire. Let's just bracket, bracket that for a moment. One thing that the OLC memo does say that is important is that the contingency that's going to happen, the end of the term, um, of the Supreme Court term um, is happening within the current presidency, and the, um, and and it's important for Rehnquist um, in the OLC memo to say it might be different if the contingency were to arise in a subsequent presidency, um, maybe even formally a subsequent presidency that you've been reelected to. Um, imagine actually you're sitting president, you're reelected in uh, in November. Um, um, the Electoral College has even met and certified you in in um, early January, but um, the contingency is going to happen in February, which is your next term. Um, so, um, uh, but here's one thing that that Vic mentioned earlier, and that Rehnquist was attentive to. Um, Biden is not stealing a, um, a slot from his successor. Okay, um, the contingency, which is the end of the Supreme Court term, is going to happen on Biden's watch, presumably, and and that's significant. Now, you know, obviously, lightning could could strike him tomorrow. God, God forbid. But that was true in the Thurgood Marshall situation. I will retire when my successor is is confirmed, um, which is similar to O'Connor's and 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 Kennedy's, I believe. Okay, um, let me interrupt you for one moment. Um, so I. You know, you were confusing me with what you were saying about the this business about the president that the uh, president's term, and the reason that you're confusing me is that this is a different memo that you're referring to, and it is not an OLC memo memo from William Rehnquist. It's a it's an OLC memo from Christopher Schrader, the uh, which is dated um, April sixth, two thousand twenty-two. Authority okay. of the president to prospectively appoint a Supreme Court justice. And there they discuss the question of whether it's likely to occur during the president's term. So this okay. is different from the Rehnquist memo. Just so our audience doesn't think that, doesn't go right. looking through Rehnquist's papers to try to find this memo. Okay, let, let, let's upload that one as well. And as our audience is, is now um, uh, hearing, I haven't looked at these memos carefully because um, it's it's Easter weekend and I've been doing other things. But, 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 but Andy, to be clear, the Schrader memo was written with the Judge Jackson case in mind from the, the timing, right? It's dated when? It's dated April 6th. April of, of this 11 year. days ago. Yes. Yeah. So this this is a, this is a, this is not an abstract 
you know, kind of uh, behind the Rawlsian veil of ignorance analysis. Here are some other important things to keep in mind that there's a difference between commissioning someone and they're accepting the commission. And, and this is relevant because if you, by commissioning someone was tantamount to them, they're actually beginning the office. You could in effect push someone out um, of an existing position involuntarily. Um, you, you don't like a Senator or something or a representative. So you, you get them confirmed to X, you commission them to X and now they're ousted from the, the house or Senate or something because the incompatibility class. No, they, they have to accept the commission. Um, so, um, so then what's the point of commissioning them before they've accepted? Well, you have to do, you know, one has to precede the other, but, but once someone has been commissioned, the Senate can't change its mind. And the Rehnquist memo does talk about that, that once the president issues a commission, the Senate can't, um, um, uh, rescind and, the president can't rescind. That goes all the way back to Marbury versus Madison, that once a commission has been signed and sealed, even before it's been delivered, much less accepted, the president has done the last act he can, and so he's bound himself. So he can't change his mind if lightning strikes him tomorrow and, and the vice president uh, becomes president. She can't um, uh, 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 change the deal either. So, and by the way, that, that makes sense because the president and the Senate are the only two actors in this game. And once they've both acted, it, there's finality. That's to be contrasted, for example, with the position that you and, and I, I think, have advanced in the uh, uh, amendment ratification process where we think a state can rescind its ratification until and unless the magic number of three-quarters states has been hit. But once that's been hit, then no one can rescind even if they want to, even, even if the effective date of the proposed amendment is sometime off in the future. So all of this is about all these complicated issues about when certain things vest, you know, when an amendment vests and until then you can, you can rescind when a, a commission, uh, an appointment vests. And after that, the president can't go back on it. The Senate can't go back on it. So all these complexities. I think to, to our audience, I would say that you can't take these things at face value necessarily. You know, I'm reviewing here the memor- this memorandum from April 6, 2022, from the OLC. And it says, Our office has taken the position that prospective appointments are permissible for vacancies anticipated to occur during the appointing official's own term of office. Okay, when did our office take that position? He references the Rehnquist memo from November 27th, 1970, which says nothing about that. So that, so... He, well, I, I'll, I'll take your word for it again. I haven't read these with care. I, I'm telling you, it says nothing okay. about it. But, but, but remember, we, we really already have crossed several Rubicons, and whether it's in the Rehnquist memo or not, the Rehnquist memo's method is to look at past practice. And I'm saying mm-hmm. past practice has made clear that even before a vacancy actually opens up, you can have nomination um, and, and confirmation. Um, um, all sorts of justices in the past have said, I will retire when um, my successor is picked. Right, but Justice Breyer has not said that. And I think that this, is, this matters because it's one thing to say, I will do this when this happens. I, I resign as of 
you know, Thursday. I resign as of the next time it rains. You know, I resign as of the, not I resign as of this unless maybe I don't, okay? Um, because he does not say that, the, he says, I anticipate, I plan, you know, and now what if that's a difference without a difference, fine, but I don't find it a difference without a difference. Does Justice Breyer have to step down now, now that someone has been confirmed? Is he required to? Well, I do think that the um, letter may have been inartful. I, I think it's hard to imagine that he could undo the decision at this point. So, so if you say um, he shouldn't have used the word intend, but in um, the context of the whole letter, he is announcing that he will step down at the end of the term. Um, assuming that a successor has been picked, that seems to me to be pretty much consistent with past practice. And the only difference is he used this awkward word intend. You think that was an accident? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And and not just intend, but also assuming. Assuming that by then, Mike. So now, of course, in this case, the, the, his successor yeah. has been nominated and confirmed. Yeah. So, so that part would presumably be inoperative now. But I will, I will step down when the term ends if my successor has been picked, and if my successor hasn't yet been picked, I'll keep serving until my successor is picked. Um, so I, I will, I will, I will. So um, um, that's that's not. It seems to me um, very different than our past practices. Let me put it another way. I think that you need, in order to trigger a confirmation process, a nomination and confirmation process, there has to be some level of certainty that they that the, and there I is. intend the term. The term will end. The term. Oh, yes. I, I keep admitting, Andy, that was not a good word. Okay. Asked and answered. Okay. I'm going to be like Judge Jackson. I've said that four times now. Okay. Okay. But, 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 but here's what's certain. But here's what's certain. The term will end and I'm not going to step down until someone else is picked. And we've done that before. Here's the thing though, Akil. That's fine. It's inartful, right? In terms of we don't, we don't like it. But we're talking about law here. Um, you know, when, what is the trigger for a, a confirmation process, a nomination and a confirmation process to begin? Because if you don't have a defined trigger, then the, as you said earlier, there's nothing stopping Biden from nominating uh, people to every seat on the Supreme Court, all of them, and having, you know, the Democratic Senate you know, uh, confirm all of them, and then having Biden issue commissions to all of them, and then at that point, the the you know the the Senate can't undo it, and the pre- the next president can't undo it, and these will just sit there until those nominations until until people choose to resign, and then we already have their report. So we and, need and, an and, actual legitimacy to the nomination and confirmation process. Um, and I would say that having a contingent resignation is not the answer to that. That's why I think, that's why I put, yes, I'm placing a lot of, because it's not just that, oh, Justice Breyer did a bad job, but it, to me, it calls into question the legitimacy 
of the nomination and the confirmation practice a process as a whole that took place. Now you could say that the well the, the again, Senate, again if that if, if he hadn't used that word intend, Andy, I'm not sure you right. um, would um, have uh, much cause for concern. So in effect, um, I, th- I think everyone in the process has construed, maybe including Brian himself, that word intends to mean shall. Um, the, the president did in issuing the nomination. Um, uh, Katenji Brown-Jackson did in uh, being willing to be the nominee. The Senate did on both sides unanimously. In fact, um, every right. senator right. in processing the, the thing. Um, the, the president, I think, further did because I believe the president's actually issued a commission, uh, although we haven't seen it yet. I, at least I haven't seen it yet. Um, and I think the Office of Legal Counsel basically did in this um, Schrader memo. Again, I'm not sure I would have, uh, had, had I been asked, I, I wasn't that I would have said that the word intend, I, w- I would have recommended the word intend because, because I don't see it in the, um, the most recent um, resignation letters mm-hmm. with which that I'm familiar. That's been used before. But but here's the key point in the Schrader memo, and, and my apologies for thinking that this was in the Rehnquist memo, but I did notice it and think, aha, that's significant. Um, the contingency has to be one that will occur during the current president's current term. And and if it doesn't, the memo says, oh, we we don't necessarily endorse it. It might be okay. Might not be okay. We don't reach that question, but but um, but here it's very important. And and Vic intuited this just off the you know just in in off the top of his head and giving you his 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 quick his hot take is you don't want one president in effect stealing slots from uh, their uh, their successor. Right. So which is which is what I was talking about. Uh, you know, could could happen. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, why even do all this now? And because the because it's not just about the president; it's about the Senate and locking in the existing Senate because of COVID and the midterms. Um, um, it's not beyond the realm of the uh, imaginable that the, uh, the Senate, until it's locked in, the Senate could say, "Oh, we change our mind; we rescind the confirmation," and and that's why I believe actually that um, I think President Biden has already issued the commission saying, "I've locked myself in; I've locked the Senate in. We can't change anything." Um, Judge Jackson doesn't have to accept it. Of course, she will. Um, and in effect, and Judge Breyer, um, Justice Breyer can't change his mind. No take backs as a practical matter. Here's your gold watch. Our friend Ed Whalen, that appeared on our, our podcast as, as a guest, um, has been writing about this. And uh, yeah, let's, let, let's, let's post some links to his very, very interesting meditations on this. And, and by the way, Ed, I believe at one point was um, uh, not only did he work in OLC, but he was acting head of OLC um, uh, uh, briefly. And he, you know, it's interesting to watch his evolution because at one point he says, well, you know, did, did the Biden administration issue a commission after, after the Senate uh, vote? And he's, he doesn't know that they did or that they didn't. And he's outraged at the possibility that they, that they might have done so. This is another example of their misbehavior. And you know, so, and then 
the next day puts his tail between his legs and he says, oh, I read this, this memo and now I say, oh, he, he probably did and he probably should have. Um, and, and, that, and that's a good lawyer, okay? Um, because he, he sees something that he didn't um, uh, see before and it persuades him. That, that's, that's, you know, what, what we want. Just like I apparently said the Rehnquist memo says X and you said, actually, my friend Akil, it doesn't say X. I said, okay, <laughs> you know, you give me new facts, I'm going to give you a, a mm-hmm. new opinion. Well, and even his revised opinion, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's a little incomplete because in the Rehnquist memo, they talk about, you know, why the commission might be issued, you know, at, at a particular point. And they say, well, it's to prevent uh, the Senate from, from reconsidering what they did. Once the commission is issued, the Senate doesn't get to reconsider it. And then they go, they cite Marbury mm-hmm. versus Madison, um, uh, jo- jo- John Marshall's opinion. I have a quote from that explaining why. So it's a very interesting issue about when, you, you know, the commission, when can the Senate take it back? When can the president take it back? Like you, we were just talking about. Um, but they also say in this memo that, well, the Senate only gets to reconsider in the first two days after, under the Senate rules, uh, any member that voted for the commission, or that voted for the confirmation. The, vo- the ones that voted against it don't get to ask for reconsideration. So o- sure. only the ones, so Mitt sure. Romney could ask, could have asked for reconsideration. But only yes. in the first two days, they say, well, the Senate could then change the rules, but that would take a two-thirds yeah. vote, they say. And that's what they say in the, in the Rehnquist memo. Now, I don't know if that's true anymore. I don't think it is true anymore, um, that it would take a two-thirds vote. Um, but you're not going to get two-thirds of the Senate if, if it is true to vote to change that rule for this purpose. So after the two days have elapsed. Well, if you're, if you're, if you're a formalist, I'm not sure you, you rely on, on Mm -hmm. predictions like that. It's just Ed Whalen and I play the constitutional law game by similar rules. And my initial instinct was actually Ed Whalen's G um, I bet he hasn't issued the commission yet because the, the vacancy doesn't yet exist. Um, and then uh, I changed my, so my initial instinct was very similar to Ed's. And then the Rehnquist memo comes out and I changed my mind very similar to how Ed changes his. And it's not just because uh, there's an OLC memo, but because it's actually giving me facts. It's telling me this thing, uh, similar things have happened before like this. Um, so there, there's, there's practice, there's custom um, of issuing commissions um, before the vacancy has formally uh, um, uh, arisen. Um, and there are reasons why that's so um, to, to, to sort of lock people in. Um, and, uh, and this nice subtle point that issuing the commission isn't the same as the commencement of the office because the person can say no and they have to be able to say no. Otherwise you could actually, um, uh, by inflicting an, an unwanted commission, out right, you someone, could appoint, um, for example, right, you could appoint Senate. every Republican Senator to a, you know, newly created sub cabinet post, um, that, that's passed, you know, that's approved by the majority Democrat in the Senate and you've got no Republican yeah. senators. <laughs> so, all right. So, so let's, and actually that raises another question, um, which is, 
um, is it proper for her, for Judge Jackson to accept the commission now? If she accepted the commission now, would she... I would have to. I would have to see what the commission mm-hmm. says. I, I, actually, I, again, I don't. I don't think it's been made public, and I don't know what the wording uh, of it is. Um, and um, it might be a little weird for her to be um, an associate justice on the Supreme Court when uh, Breyer hasn't given up the slot. Um, uh, now we're paying for ten associate. Uh, you know, um, uh, at nice to be nine associates and, and one chief, whereas the statute seems to say eight associates. And one chief, you know, get get paid as such. I, I, the Supreme Court associate justice position is probably a different salary than the D.C. Circuit position. So um, uh, I'm not sure she accepts prior to the actual creation of the vacancy. But maybe there's precedent on that too. And and uh, and and those are the sorts of things that these um, memos are, are are very helpful for. Is is telling me how similar things have been done in the past. Okay, well, I mean, I, I know some of this might sound esoteric, but I, I actually find it fascinating. And look, is it, there is a, a certain reason that things have to be done in a certain order. It, it, it's what Marbury versus Madison was all about, in part. When did the commission vest? And, and Marbury very famously takes the position that um, vests when the commission is signed and sealed, um, and it need not be mm-hmm. delivered. Okay, well... I'll be very interested in reading the the uh, commission when it eventually becomes public, which I assume will happen at some point. All right, so we I think we have completed this issue. So who knows what will be in the news for next week? Um, and we still have the um, independent state legislature uh, article to discuss. Um, yes, we'll have Vic back for that one. And thanks, Vic, for um, this week. Thank you both so much. This was fun. Take care. Great. And we'll see you all next week.